Season four of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best selling book, Mistreated Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the fourth episode of the current season. In this our fourth season, we focus on big ideas and the people behind them. Before we begin, let's remind listeners who want to know more about the current coronavirus pandemic that they can listen every Monday to our podcast, Coronavirus, The Truth, through Apple and Spotify. Last week, we talked about how the coronavirus, with its disproportionate impact, on African-Americans has contributed to the intensity of demonstrations and protests. In addition, we highlighted the disturbing number of issues with the scientific research has been published in leading medical journals on the virus and its treatment. This week, we expand on both topics. You can also find additional information through the website robertperlmd.com on how comfortable people are with the different steps specific to controlling the spread of the virus and their perspectives on the greatest threats to their lives from the current COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest today is Dr. David Kessler. David was the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, from 1990 to 1997. During that time, he led the process to educate consumers about nutrition facts on foods, regulate cigarettes, and rapidly approve life-saving drugs against HIV and AIDS. He then served as dean at the Yale School of Medicine from 1997 to 2003, and then dean and vice chancellor at the University of California, San Francisco from 2003 to 2007. He's the author of numerous books and most recently published Fast Carbs, Slow Carbs. This interview was recorded in early March as the coronavirus pandemic was becoming a progressively greater health threat. Hello, David. How are you? I'm well. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. And congratulations on publishing your newest book, Fast Carbs, Slow Carbs, The Simple Truth About Food, Weight, and Disease. It follows your New York Times bestseller, The End of Overeating, which you published in 2009, and your work as the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration Commissioner from 1990 to 1997. This season of Fixing Healthcare is about big ideas and big accountabilities, and you've had both across your career. For full disclosure to the audience, the ideas you present in your newest book, Promoting a Healthier Diet and Exercise, are ones that I applaud loudly. But before we talk about them in detail, I think it would be valuable for listeners to understand some of what you've achieved across your illustrative career. At the end, I'm going to want to know how you're going to translate your ideas, medically proven approaches, to a population whose health is declining, I think the best place to start, however, is back at the beginning. You obtained your medical degree from Harvard, and while in medical school, you obtained a law degree from the University of Chicago. How did you do that, and why did you do that? The the real answer is writing a lot of tuition checks to both the the law school uh, and uh, 
the medical school. I, I just saw that issues around healthcare were becoming increasingly complicated. And I wanted to uh, look at them um, through a broader lens. You know, ultimately, when we took on things like tobacco, every experience, everything that I learned, I ended up uh, using. Didn't know it at the time, but it came in very handy. After medical school, you did your pediatric residency at Johns Hopkins, and at the same time, you served as a political consultant. Same question. How did you do both, and why did you do both? I took a little more call uh, at night. Uh, tra- you know, uh, snuck out a little in the day, went to work on the, the Hill from the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee, basically the Senate Health Committee. Uh, it wasn't political. Uh, you know, it was uh, about, uh, there was always a history of staff uh, that was able to go between uh, both sides and did issues uh, regarding the NIH, uh, the FDA, and you know, just took a little more night call and uh, was able to juggle that. At that time, you became interested in problems that you've pursued for decades since then, particularly around food additives and cigarettes. How did you get interested in these two particular areas? When, when I came uh, to the agency, uh, this is back in uh, 1990, there were certain things that, that I knew I was interested in. Uh, I had been running a hospital in the Bronx. I was medical director of the Einstein Hospital, Einstein Montefiore. And certainly through the 80s, while I was medical director, uh, we confronted head-on in the Bronx uh, the issue of uh, HIV. I still remember the first case when my colleague, Bert King, uh, said to me, uh, because Montefiore was running Rikers Island Prison Health Service, uh, the case of uh, fever and lymphadenopathy, and what was it uh, that we were seeing? Uh, and so I went to FDA uh, at a time where there was uh, an epidemic. Uh, there was only one drug um, that was on the market. It didn't uh, work very well. And uh, by the time we left, uh, we had basically more than a dozen agents and while none of them were a cure, um, they changed that disease uh, from um, a death sentence to something that certainly uh, you could live a productive life for many people with. The, uh, also at FDA, uh, we did uh, that nutrition facts panel, and happy to talk about that because I think that's sort of central to the book, that experience, putting that on all packaged foods and really went to FDA and had no, uh, no thoughts at the time of uh, uh, taking on tobacco. Uh, but one day somebody came up to me and said, Commissioner, uh, FDA regulates everything else that comes in contact uh, with the body. Why doesn't FDA regulate tobacco? So we launched the investigation uh, into the tobacco industry. Uh, and over the next uh, three decades, led to the regulation of uh, nicotine uh, and tobacco products. I definitely want to dive into a bunch of these issues that you just mentioned. But first, for background for the listeners, tell them what the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, is and what the role of the commissioner who leads the FDA uh, does and is, is expected to perform. 
When I was uh, head of the Food and Drug Administration, more than 10,000 know, wonderful scientists, statisticians, epidemiologists, uh, engineers that regulated 25 cents on every consumer dollar. Uh, everything that uh, we put in our mouths, all the drugs we take, uh, cosmetics, medical devices, blood, uh, the jurisdiction is vast. And uh, unlike many agencies where there are multiple commissioners, FDA has one person who runs the entire agency. But the truth is that there are a lot of people who really um, every day serve this country. One person can't do it alone. Since most listeners would never have guessed the magnitude of the work that the FDA does, they would never think that it would extend into areas like the food from out of the refrigerator or out of the grocery store or cosmetics they apply uh, to their bodies. Uh, maybe you should tell them about some of the most important and difficult things you, I'll say, took on and achieved during your time as commissioner. I'll tell you the story about the food label. You know, before we got to the agency, there really was no uh, information that was on the product. And we had uh, designed um, the food label as, as you now see it and wanted to disclose uh, information in an objective way. The food industry fought us you know, tooth and nail. And I remember one day the Secretary of Agriculture came up to me because we wanted to do a uniform label between both the Department of Agriculture, uh, which regulates all meat and poultry products, and the FDA um, that regulates everything else. You know the story of uh, who regulates a pizza. Uh, so if there's pepperoni on it, it's USDA. Uh, if it's a plain cheese pizza, uh, it's FDA. Uh, and we wanted to have one label for all processed packaged foods. And the Department of Agriculture, Secretary of Agriculture said, I don't like that. Um, for whatever reason, whether he thought his products would not look very good on the food label uh, with regard uh, to fat content or salt. And he says, uh, and I'm taking the issue to the president. I said, you're what? He says, yep, I'm taking the issue to the president. So fast forward into the Oval Office, uh, George Bush, the father, uh, Dan Quayle, the vice president of the United States, Marlon Fitzwater, uh, the press secretary, James Baker, the former secretary of state, who was chief of staff, uh, Secretary uh, Sullivan, HHS, Secretary Madigan, USDA. And so you have six guys who've never cooked in their lives deciding the fate of the food label. And we had been up and down the, I remember it was uh, during the summer, it was August, we had uh, summer vacation, and we'd worked with McDonald's. You know, there, there's a, a paper tray liner um, that they have, um, that they put on the trays, and we'd worked with them to have the, the Nutrition Facts panel on those tray liners when the Secretary of Agriculture said, Mr. President, FDA has lost its mind. It's not going to make the entire food industry change its label. You know, take out that uh, placemat, McDonald's placemat, show it to the uh, president and say, 
uh, Mr. President, if it's good enough for McDonald's, it should be good enough for the Department of Agriculture. And the president sided with us, uh, and that's how policy is made in this country. It's amazing insight into the workings and how the individual becomes so crucial in these ultimate decisions. I can't do anything besides stop right now and shift to modern times, to the coronavirus, COVID-19. What is the role of the FDA in helping our nation address this viral pandemic? So um, it's intimately involved. It uh, is responsible uh, for all medical devices, all biologic products, all drugs. So think about it. Uh, any vaccine uh, comes within the jurisdiction uh, of the FDA. FDA um, doesn't uh, develop the vaccine itself, but it certainly has to approve uh, the vaccine. Any drugs uh, that are used, there's emergency use authorization, there's compassionate uses, there's experimental uses, but all drugs, any antivirals would have to be approved by FDA. And also, any uh, diagnostic uh, kits. Now, FDA appropriately waived uh, those regulations in the current instance. Uh, CDC was responsible uh, for getting those uh, reagents and those test kits uh, out. It, it failed, we, we, we know that um, in a number of different uh, ways. Uh, but FDA uh, certainly has a big part uh, of almost every aspect on the diagnostic and therapeutic side. So with the decision about not allowing universities and private companies to develop the testing way back in early February have come under the purview of the FDA, or is that all through the CDC? You know, we're in, still very much in the midst of this, this crisis. I think at uh, a certain point, we will look back uh, and try to sort that out. I certainly have uh, questions uh, about what happened, and I don't think we have the whole story yet of why uh, we lost a number of crucial weeks, if not months, in fighting this, uh, this virus. I don't know the whole story, and I don't think anybody does. Uh, I think that's for sometime in the future, once this is uh, behind us, uh, we have to make sure that uh, doesn't occur again. So again, in terms of the role of the FDA and the role that you played, there's all of these treatments, whereas the chloroquine that we've heard a lot about, or uh, plasma from people who have recovered, would this also come under the purview of the FDA and the commissioner, or is this managed through other agencies in the government? It's regulated by FDA. Now the NIH is responsible for funding clinical trials and doing the, the research, uh, working with the companies and universities to get the data. Uh, but once, uh, before they go market uh, an antiviral or a vaccine, uh, it needs to be reviewed by FDA. But, you know, we, we changed the paradigm uh, decades ago you know, we learned the lessons of HIV. We were approving drugs in the matter of days, um, in you know, maybe weeks when it came to HIV, and there's no reason to believe that the agency wouldn't do the same, as long as the data supports 
that the drug uh, works uh, and that we know uh, enough information about the safety of the drug. Uh, having been the commissioner of the FDA, what is the role that you see for the agency, not in just establishing the safety of a new drug, but trying to let consumers know whether this drug is significantly better than the currently available generics or other much lower priced medications? No, it's an excellent question. The way the law is written, a drug has to be both safe and effective. It doesn't have to, under the law, be better than something on the market. So you have to show that your drug works. You have to show your drug works, for example, compared to a placebo. Uh, and you have to show that the drug is safe. Now, the way FDA uh, deals with that, even though the, the law is not explicit, uh, the, the fact is uh, the, on the safety side, if a drug has uh, more side effects or the same side effects and is not as good as something else on the market, it's hard to think how you could say that the risks are acceptable in light of the benefits uh, if, it's, uh, if it's worse and has the same, uh, something else has uh, better uh, and your drug has side effects. So it's a complicated question, but generally we don't require, Congress has never required, relative efficacy to be shown. If uh, Stephen Hahn, the current commissioner, called you and said, what is the biggest advice you can give me based upon your time leading during quite a number of crises, what would you tell them? The job is white heat. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who try to influence uh, the agency's decisions. And today, you can see it play out at the highest levels of government, uh, the administration trying to influence, get this drug to the market, approve this drug, do it immediately. And what you have to do is be willing to put your body on the line um, and allow the people at the agency uh, to look at the data uh, and to focus on the science uh, and make the best decisions they know how to do. And your job is to protect that decision-making process. Let me ask you one last question about the current COVID-19, and then we'll go back to your time as Commissioner of the FDA, but I, it's hard not to ask this question, having you such an expert on our show. Assume the vaccine is still a year away from broad implementation. How do you see this epidemic ending before that time? Without a vaccine, you certainly have you know, the hope for an antiviral before a vaccine. And then the question is, what type of antiviral? Uh, is it going to be an antiviral to treat this disease or prevent uh, infection? It would be great to have a prophylactic antiviral. And I mean, there are certainly a lot of clinical trials uh, underway. There's anecdotal information right now. Uh, there's reason to hope that they'll, you know, maybe an existing antiviral or a new antiviral will have will be able to demonstrate efficacy. But even before an antiviral or a uh, vaccine, you know, I've been thinking very hard about uh, this question. And the only answer 
um, that I can come up with of how to allow people to uh, come out uh, of their homes, out of the sheltering in place, um, is widespread testing. And the, the basics of public health, you know, contact uh, tracing, uh, but, you know, either serological or virologic, we'll see where we are, we'll see what the antibodies really do, um, if they're produced, do they confer immunity, clinical immunity? All that needs to, to be shown. Uh, but in the absence of uh, a way uh, to treat this virus or prevent this virus, the only thing we have is to be identify those who are infected, and we do that through widespread testing. So I think uh, the answer is testing, 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 and to do uh, what China and South Korea uh, and several other uh, communities uh, have done, um, identify those who are spreading the virus uh, and uh, protect others uh, from that spread. It's worked uh, for hundreds of years, uh, that methodology. There's no reason that it doesn't work here. There's evidence already that it works uh, as we're sitting here, as you're taping this. That's what we have, but it's going to be dependent on testing, and we're nowhere testing enough people at this moment. You have a history of taking on the big industries. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your struggles trying to rein in tobacco uh, with the big manufacturers and the role of the FDA? So tobacco, no doubt when we were at FDA, um, that was the the, the biggest uh, battle, I think, uh, that we undertook. Um, you know, we went where no one went before. We went inside the industry to understand uh, what the industry knew about the addictive potential, uh, the addictiveness of nicotine, of how they manipulated the levels of nicotine, how they targeted young people, uh, and how uh, they sustained the people's addictions uh, for you know, decade after decade after decade, uh, and really changed, I think, how people viewed the cigarette. Certainly, you know, my parents and my grandparents' generation, uh, smoking was something that was cool and adventuresome and uh, something uh, that you did um, uh, to relax. And I think we changed uh, how the cigarette is viewed from the way my parents and grandparents viewed it to what it really is, uh, a deadly addictive product. Uh, and we see that reflected in the number of people who smoke. And you were taken to the Supreme Court, I believe, by the tobacco industry? We uh, asserted jurisdiction uh, based, the President Clinton uh, supported us. It went all the way up to uh, the Supreme Court we, we won at the trial level in, in North Carolina. We lost in the Court of Appeals. And we lost in the Supreme Court 5-4. Uh, uh, so we lost by one vote. But interestingly, uh, what happened was that Congress took our regulations and enacted our regulations into law. It took uh, some time, but uh, that, enacted, that enactment really resulted even in an even stronger set of uh, regulations because it was codified into statute. So many chapters, a lot of people involved, took close to three decades 
from the start of the investigation uh, to the enactment of the statute. And the FDA, while your commissioner was asked to look at the safety of the silicon breast implant that plastic surgeons use, how did you think about that problem and reach your conclusion? So, you know, silicone uh, breast implants were being marketed, um, and they were allowed on the market really through a loophole because um, they were uh, viewed as similar to devices that came on the market uh, prior to the device amendments in 1976. So they were considered pre-amendment devices. So they came on the market without any clinical testing. Uh, and over time, when you think about it, you have a basically an outer bag uh, that's a polymer, and that bag is, um, because it's a polymer, it has blebs and uh, different uh, areas of thickness and thinness, and you fill it with liquid silicone. Uh, and you know there can be these sort of defects in the, in the outer uh, shell, and you implant it in someone's body, and you I mean, just think for a second, what do you think is going to happen uh, if you put silicone in a bag and uh, you're going to put it in for 10, 20, 30 years? But no one ever did the study and, and studied the... Uh, so we, we said, because we were hearing uh, reports um, and the safety reports about risk, reports about these devices leaking um, and rupturing. And we said to the industry, you have to go back and do the clinical trials. And as it turned out, uh, these devices not only don't last a lifetime, not only do they rupture and cause leakage of the silicone outside of the shell, we now have confirmed uh, that in fact uh, a rare type of cancer is associated with certain types of breast implants. It's not very common, uh, but th these devices carry real risks in uh, yet they were being marketed without uh, clinical trials, without us having that information. So now that uh, those that carry these higher risks are off the market, then uh, people can make informed decisions uh, based on much more information uh, than was available when we um, had to ask the companies to pull back on selling these uh, and only do that under certain requirements for reconstructive surgery and do the clinical trials. Uh, so we've learned a lot over the last uh, decade, several decades. As commissioner, you held the lives of tens of thousands, millions of individuals uh, under your jurisdiction when it comes to new drugs, fail to put them in place quickly enough and people will die from the underlying diseases put them in place, but have a significant complication, as we saw with thalidomide uh, long before your time, uh, and those complications impact people forever. How do you weigh this? How do you sleep at night? How, how do you approach this? Seems like it's a almost impossible task for anyone, no matter how large the agency, no matter how much expertise, at the end of the day, you've got to make the call. How do you do it? You know, in, in the same question, in, in the same breath, you can, you know, reporters can write that the agency is either acting too fast and 
not taking safety into consideration or too slow in holding up important drugs. I think we've developed probably the most sophisticated drug regulatory system in the world. I think uh, we are as fast as any country in the world uh, and uh, yet uh, have tried to maintain uh, rigorous uh, standards. That doesn't mean FDA doesn't uh, mess up. Uh, it does uh, do that uh, sometimes. Look, the primary responsibility for the safety of a drug, I mean, we have to recognize that ours is a country where we have a private system of drug development. Drugs are uh, developed by private companies. Uh, they are studied by private companies and universities. FDA doesn't uh, test a drug. Uh, it doesn't develop a drug. Uh, FDA reviews the data. FDA is only as good as the data that comes in uh, from uh, the company. Uh, and uh, FDA tries hard, but it's, the, the fact is uh, FDA is not perfect. FDA doesn't get everything right. Uh, FDA tries hard uh, to uh, look at the data. Um, I think we've evolved a very sophisticated drug regulatory system. But the fact is, you know, this notion that up until the day a drug is marketed, it's unsafe, and then all of a sudden on the day that you market a drug, the drug is safe and uh, forevermore, um, that's just not the way it works. The fact is, as you use a drug, more is learned, and that's why the companies have responsibilities to make sure that they update the label with new information. And FDA can oversee uh, the regulatory framework, but uh, the prime responsibility uh, still rests with the manufacturer. So let's move to your new book, Fast Carbs, Slow Carbs, The Simple Truth About Food, Weight, and Disease. What made you decide to write this book at this time? My own confusion, to be honest. Uh, uh, the, the difficulty over the years of uh, maintaining uh, weight, uh, I would uh, lose weight. Um, I would gain it back. Um, I would lose it. I would gain it back. Um, and I never fully understood why. Um, and that was a prime prime reason. So in part, it was personal. It was. It's also uh, personal. I mean, in some ways, um, because the, the the recognition, not only personal but but it's professional. You look at where we are as a country, uh, and the fact is, um, you know the the vast majority of people, some eighty seven. 88% uh, of us have some form of metabolic dysregulation going on, whether it's uh, inability to control weight or blood pressure or uh, blood uh, lipids or blood glucose. Only 12% uh, meet current guidelines with regard to those metabolic uh, parameters. Uh, and the effect of food on metabolic dysregulation, uh, I became very interested. I mean, look around. Um, the uh, weight is without a doubt the, the key determinant of much uh, of the current metabolic 
disease, which includes uh, diabetes and uh, cardiometabolic uh, diseases. And I wanted to understand, I wanted to understand what was going on. I wanted to understand what was at the root um, of this metabolic dysregulation. Because something uh, is clearly different over the last uh, several decades uh, with the skyrocketing incidence of both pre-diabetes and diabetes and the cardiovascular and other complications associated uh, with metabolic dysregulation. What was the biggest insight that you gained in your research? I think that the, the key culprit, and I didn't understand this, even when we did the full food label, I didn't understand uh, what was the key, you know, what was the real culprit. And the, the fact is, uh, if you look at the amount of processed carbohydrates that we are ingesting, we are flooding our bodies with an endless stream of glucose. Sure, you know, I, I wrote The End of Overeating, uh, you know, a book on fat, sugar, and salt. But there was one key fact that you know, I didn't focus on in that book, nor when we did the food label. Let me, let me just give you, for example, imagine a nutrition facts panel. That's the, uh, you know, the panel on all packaged foods. Let me describe a food to you and tell me what you think that food is. So you see on the top line, it says total calories, 300. And you look next to the line on fat and it said 0%. And then you look at the line on sugar and it said zero uh, percent. And you look at salt and it had some salt, it had some protein, but you look at the majority uh, of the macronutrients and it says just total carbohydrates, 30 grams. What do you think that food is? If it just, it, no sugar, no fat, just you know some salt, protein, but mostly um, it just says total carbohydrates. I would assume there would be some kind of, well, I don't know, corn product maybe, or some type of vegetable product, wheat product. I'm not sure. What is it? It's a bagel. And what is a bagel? What is it made out of? Uh, I mean, it's starch. And I had this concept right, that starch was relatively inert. I mean, it comes, I mean, the, the, the flour, uh, that endosperm um, of uh, the, the wheat uh, kernel. Um, but the fact is, the, the way that we have processed carbohydrates, um, uh, and you see that that wheat kernel that normally that has that starch tightly uh, packaged, uh, in that kernel, when that gets processed, uh, either as flour uh, or in packaged foods, uh, the, the processing machines uh, have exert great de degrees of heat and uh, mechanical forces and it shear on uh, that starch granules. Uh, that starch is dispersed uh, and it's almost pre-digested before we put it in our mouths. 
And when we, um, when we ingest it, that starch is rapidly absorbed as glucose in the early part of the gastrointestinal tract. And if you look at processed foods, it's not just, you know, it's not a bagel, it's not just uh, flour products or baked products. I mean, the vast majority of processed foods are some 60%, um, you know, starch. And what we're doing is flooding our bodies with this rapidly absorbable glucose. And no one ever asked the question, what, it, what are the consequences of this never-ending stream of rapidly absorbable glucose in the early parts of our digestive system? You know, when I was in med school, uh, you can tell me what you learned. The gastrointestinal tract was somewhat of a tube. We didn't understand that the gastrointestinal tract was, in essence, the sensory organ that had hormones. You know, and now that there are hormones by which if, if you, you eat foods that are so rapidly absorbed, so quickly absorbed in the early part of the GI tract, that they never even get further down into the latter part of the GI tract, uh, 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 that they stimulate these insulin-stimulating um, uh, hormones, but don't stimulate, right? Because the, the satiety and fullness hormones are... Uh, uh, later on in the GI tract. Uh, and we've been flooding our bodies, uh, certainly uh, with a never-ending um, stream of this glucose. And for those who are, and I don't think this applies to everybody, the marathon runner may be different. You know, maybe about 10, 15% uh, may, uh, of the population this may not have any effect. But for the vast majority of us who struggle with weight, that rapidly absorbable glucose, uh, and I don't think we know exactly the mechanism. There are a number of mechanisms, whether the food is so pre-digested that it just increases eating rate, that it just goes down in a, in a whoosh, that uh, it doesn't uh, stimulate the satiety hormones, that it stimulates the insulin uh, secreting hormones. But you see this cycle of weight gain, insulin resistance, obesity. Uh, you get caught in this cycle. And once you're in this cycle um, that I think is only made worse by these rapidly absorbable uh, glucose molecules, by these processed carbohydrates, uh, it's very hard uh, to get out of that cycle. Um, and if you look at the, both the epidemiological uh, data, I mean, there certainly is a link, certainly in people who struggle with their weight, the association between these processed carbohydrates and not only weight gain, but also uh, the increased blood glucose, insulin resistance, prediabetes and diabetes. The prescription you provide to readers is a difficult one. You're asking them to give up some of the most pleasurable foods. You're asking them to exercise at least 150 minutes a week and preferably 300 a week. You're telling them to lose weight, which is always a difficult and long process. 
no question in my mind that the science you provide is superb. How do you see psychologically, how do you see societally translating the work in your book to actually impacting the health of Americans? Sort of try, trying to sort through the noise, right? Because I think there's a lot of conflicting information. I try to put it down to three basic, simple recommendations. One is to try to reduce or eliminate as much, uh, rap, the rapidly absorbable, these fast carbs, as I call them. Right? So eliminate fast carbs, reduce the fast carbs. Two, um, and this I think is an extraordinary opportunity um, that we have um, to make as much progress as we made on health as we did with tobacco. If everyone could get their LDL down, with their blood lipid, if we can significantly lower uh, blood lipids, um, that we can wipe out 70, 80% of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. We now know that LDL, specifically the LDL particles or the, between, you know, you and I know that, you know, the, what's called the ApoB uh, markers on um, these blood lipid particles. If we can lower everyone's LDL significantly, we can, we can wipe out the vast majority of cardiovascular uh, heart disease. And if you engage in moderate intensity exercise, you can uh, stay insulin sensitive. Um, and that has enormous consequences uh, for maintaining weight uh, as well as, well as metabolic health. So three simple rules. Try to limit fast carbs, reduce uh, LDL, um, uh, exercise moderate intensity. That can dramatically change healthcare in this country. Given your work on kind of taking on some of the stuff with the tobacco industry, what are your thoughts on uh, medical marijuana and not just medical marijuana, but the legalization for recreational use? I mean, it seems like it's done quite a bit for the states that it's been legalized in, in terms of a tax revenue standpoint. Kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll leave it to others. You know, I mean, in some ways, um, the decision. Uh, the public has made the decision, and I respect uh, the public, uh, you know, public view and the public sentiment, uh, and certainly uh, am strongly supportive of you know, decriminalization um, and uh, the very inconsistent uh, effects and disparities that uh, drug laws have on you know different uh, citizens. So I'm very sensitive to that, but. You know, I do, as a doc, uh, I am concerned about the power, uh, the, the, the pharmacological potency of the various components of marijuana on the brain. So these are, these are potent uh, chemicals. Uh, and I'm, you know, very concerned about the, the effects of marijuana on the developing adolescent brain. Uh, I, you know, others have spent their lives studying, uh, studying it. Uh, I've studied it a good deal, but I think there is a, a real effect that perhaps just an association, maybe not causation, uh, but I think that in a certain percentage 
and I can't be sure what that percentage is, uh, but it's real uh, that there's an association between uh, marijuana usage uh, and um, uh, psychosis, uh, and that concerns me. I think there are drugs far less potent um, that are on the market that have many more warnings, and I don't think it is benign uh, for everyone. In terms of the outbreak with COVID-19, when people look back on what happened, is it going to be one of those things where we were prepared and, and you know, the current administration is doing a great job of leadership right now? Maybe they dropped the ball a little bit early. But one of the uh, things I've seen in social media is that, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, if we would have spent all this money on getting test kits ready and everything like that early enough on, and then China was able to contain it on its own, uh, the, the administration would have been criticized for spending all that money on, on, on all the preparation. Kind of, what are your thoughts on that, uh, that concept of hindsight's 2020 and, and kind of what I'm talking about there? I think there's, there's, there's some validity to that. But if you look... The experts had been warning about this for some time. Uh, in early January, uh, mid-January, you know, when the the infectivity uh, and um, the lethality of the virus uh, was demonstrated in humans, and there was a community uh, spread, there was a window uh, to act. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we did not act uh, soon enough or with an intensity uh, that matched the uh, both infectivity and lethality of the virus. Do you think in five years' time we're going to be much more prepared or even 20 years' time much more prepared for another virus like this? Or do you think it's one of those things that, you know, 100 years, you know, 50, you know, 30, whatever, uh, that it's just going to, you know, another major pandemic is just going to kind of fall back into our memories like the Spanish flu did, and we're just not going to be putting as much emphasis on preparing for something like that? I think we have an obligation to uh, make sure that to the extent that we're capable that there is no repeat uh, of what's happened here. Uh, I don't think we can, um, you know, I, I, I hope and pray um, that we make it out uh, with the least harm. Uh, but I, you know, on, on the current episode, we, we all already have seen uh, the devastation and the tragic effect on you know, many uh, loved ones and I can't see. Um, I can't see how we can uh, not have it affect us dramatically, and that means taking every possible measure to make sure that we don't go through this again. What would you say to the people that were skeptical that this was ever anything more than just a bad flu season? I, I think the evidence is such that you, you just come to New York you go work on the wards, you go into the ER. This is not like any flu season. Um, the infectivity 
uh, and uh, mortality across a range group of ages uh, is such, uh, this is very different. If someone asked me for one word to describe Dr. David Kessler, I'd use the word crusader. Across your career, you've taken on the cigarette industry, you've taken on many of the manufacturing companies, you're taking on the food processing industry. You have gone after, I'll say in quotes, all of the bad guys. How did you become a crusader, David? You know, I never thought of myself as that. Um, and I still do. Um, I still think of myself as someone who asks questions. Um, sometimes they're hard questions. They're questions we don't know the answer uh, to up front. And, uh, going, looking at the evidence, and trying to follow the evidence, uh, no matter where it uh, leads, uh, whether it uh, leads to addiction, uh, whether it leads to significant uh, disease consequences. It's about asking questions and following the evidence. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Dr. Kessler presented? Jeremy, David has had a brilliant career and yet he is still a very humble man. His work at the FDA was groundbreaking, and his insights into health, powerful. As you noted at the start, the interview was recorded early in the coronavirus pandemic. Listening two months later, he was prescient in seeing the challenges this infectious agent would have and the difficulties we would encounter at identifying an effective drug, we're developing a successful and safe vaccine. And as he noted, we will need to re-examine the missteps of the FDA along the way. His ideas on the hazards of processed food and his encouragement to each of us to look for opportunities to improve our health are solid and scientifically based. Two of the biggest risk factors relative to dying from the coronavirus are obesity and diabetes, the link between what we eat and a huge number of metabolic problems is well described in fast carbs, slow carbs, and the evidence solid. Our nation would be wise to heed his recommendations. Listening to him, I kept wondering how different our nation's response might have been had David been the commissioner of the FDA at the start of 2020. But of course, there's no way to know. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcast or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, you can visit my website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.